Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution. Welcome back to the Superhumanize podcast. I am very excited for this episode because today we are going on a deep dive on how to develop optimal performance no matter what life throws at us. Some people excel even when things get tough in situations of uncertainty and instability. Have you ever wondered how they do this? How is it possible to succeed no matter what the circumstances? Today's guest went on a mission to understand what separates those who succeed from those who fail and how each one of us can work on developing our full potential in order to be the greatest version of ourselves. Rich Divini has over 20 years of experience as a Navy SEAL officer. He completed more than 13 overseas deployments, 11 of which were to Iraq and Afghanistan, and he achieved multiple leadership positions, including the commanding officer of a Navy SEAL command. Rich was intimately involved in the world-renowned SEAL selection process, which whittles exceptional candidates down to a small cutter of the most elite optimal performers. But Rich was often surprised by which recruits washed out and which succeeded. Someone could have all the right skills and still fail, while recruits he might have initially dismissed would prove to be top performers. The seemingly objective criteria weren't telling him what he most needed to know who had what it took to be part of the world's most elite military unit. Eventually, he cracked the code. Through years of observation, Rich learned to identify a successful recruit's core attributes, the innate traits for how a person performs as an individual and as part of a team. And this same methodology can be used by anyone in their personal or professional lives. Since his retirement in early 2017, Rich has worked as a speaker, facilitator, and consultant with the Chapman & Co. Leadership Institute and Simon Sinek, Inc. Rich has taught leadership and optimal performance to more than 5,000 business, athletic, and military leaders from organizations such as American Airlines, the San Francisco 49ers, Zoom, and Deloitte. He is also the author of the best-selling book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. And today, he shares his insights and strategies with us. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Rich, welcome to the Superhumanize podcast. It's such a pleasure to be able to connect with you today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, there's something I've really been wanting to start this conversation with when I was reading about yourself, your book, your very accomplished career. I'd like to start this conversation by defining what it means from your perspective to be a badass. Because in your book, <laughs> The attributes, 25 hidden drivers for optimal performance. You talk about this. What is a badass and what sets people who want to be a badass and those who actually become a badass apart? 
Why? What a great starting question. Gosh, I think the answer is probably a little bit more complex than we might think. I think I think badassery defined is somewhat subjective. There are badass teachers, there are badass surgeons, there are badass athletes, there are badass Navy SEALs. But I won't dodge the question. I'll say if we were to boil that down, what could be the ubiquitous definition of badass? It would be someone who is deeply committed to doing the very best they can in whatever endeavor that they had. And not only maybe the best they can, but also try to be the best at it and achieve what maybe others have not. I think that might be a general way to define most badasses in different contexts. Yes. And thank you, Rich. I love that you extend this definition of badass to all kinds of different areas of life and life paths. And your life path, of course, is from my perspective, and I'm sure from the perspective of many in the audience, the most fascinating one. You have 20 plus years of experience as a Navy SEAL officer. You've completed, I think, more than 13 overseas deployments. You were in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, achieved multiple leadership positions. What was it about the SEALs that intrigued you and made you choose that particular path? I grew up wanting to be a Navy pilot. Um, I, I have a twin brother and both of us, my dad was a private pilot. He, so we went, we'd go flying with him on the weekend. So we just flew, uh, we fell in love with aviation and we both looked at the Navy and said, wow, we get to land jets on ships. And this was actually before Top Gun came out, the first Top Gun. So it was uh, Top Gun only solidified our desire to be Navy pilots. So we grew up that way and, and I was really bent on it. It wasn't until the the first Gulf War, so early 90s. And I remember reading an article in Newsweek magazine about special operations. And it highlighted a bunch of the different services, spec ops units, so the Marines, Force Recon, Green Berets, Air Force Pararescue, and of course the Navy, and Army Rangers, and of course the Navy SEALs. And I couldn't help but notice that the SEALs, of course, they're the SEAL, C-S-E-A-L, stands for Sea Air Land. And so these guys were in every environment. So you could see they were skydiving, they were in snow, they were in underwater. I just felt these guys are really unique. And the fact that they were from the water. They were waterborne. And a lot of what their makeup was this underwaterness. I loved being in the ocean. I loved under being underwater. I'd gotten my scuba qual. And frankly, I made a decision. I ended up in college at Purdue University in, an, in a Navy ROTC program. And at the end of the day, I said to myself, well, I know I could be a Navy pilot, but I'm not sure. I want to, I'd always wonder if I could be a Navy SEAL. So I didn't want to wonder and so I said, I'm going, to try, I'm going to try for SEALs. Unfortunately, it worked out. And, uh, and I went to training, made it through. And then 20, 20 plus years later, <laughs> I finished a career. Yes. Yeah. You retired in 2017, I believe, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yep. So fairly recently. And something that's interesting to me is that when we talk about special operations in the media, or especially in pop culture, there's this mystique. We often put the focus on the individual or individuals that actually carry out a specific mission. Let's say, for example, one that comes to mind in the recent past is Bin Laden and Mm -hmm. uh, the person who shot Bin Laden. And of course, that's an important story to tell. And it's also important to recognize that many stories will forever remain untold out of the public knowledge, just by the nature of these missions. What I really find interesting is that someone like yourself, who actually at a point in your career made the decisions about who these individuals would be that would help Mm -hmm. protect our 
national security and interest, and who at some point may be in that position of pulling the trigger of executing a vitally important mission, you also ran training for Navy SEALs, and you were involved in the selection process. And in order to select these highly qualified people for such an important job, calling, vocation, there's something that you really need to pay attention to. And you say that optimal performance goes beyond just skill. It's all about the attributes. And in your book, you reference an experience from uh, 2010, where you were in charge of training some of the best special operations units on the planet. And everyone there was seemingly super qualified, but most of those people didn't make it. And you're talk about an extremely well-qualified candidate who didn't make the cut. Can you tell us about this experience and how it led you to look into attributes? Yes. So, this, so I was put in charge of training for one of our specialized SEAL commands. And so we have, there's basic SEAL training, BUDS, basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training that's held in San Diego, California. That's where candidates, Navy, candidates from the Navy go to, to see if they want to be Navy SEALs. And that is a six month long process. Some of the toughest training in the world. It's about a 90% attrition rate. And, and that's what you do to get to be a Navy SEAL. Once you're in the SEAL teams, we also have different types of commands in the SEAL teams. This particular, this particularly specialized command was one where we would take some of the best SEALs from all the other commands and then bring them to ours and put them through our own nine month selection process. And the attrition rate for that process was about 50%, which is, again, that's okay. Any assessment selection program implies attrition. But what, what, what wasn't okay was that we weren't able to effectively articulate why guys weren't making it through. Because, again, if you're getting the best dudes and you're bringing them to your command and only 50% of the best dudes are not making it, are making it, and you're telling the dudes who aren't making it, well, you couldn't shoot very well or you couldn't do this very well. It didn't, it was disingenuous and it didn't tell the story. It left them with a bad taste in their mouths. It left us with a bad taste in our mouths. Of course, the leadership was like, hey, you got to explain to us what's going on. And so I was tasked to articulate what was going on. And that's when I really had to dive more deeply into performance and what performance actually is. And what I recognized was that there's the visible performance, there's the stuff we see, and then there's a lot of performance based on stuff we don't see, hidden qualities, things that think that the way we show up to environments. And this is when I began to make the distinction between skills and attributes. And it really was quite illuminating because even when I thought about when I took over this training, I was I had been a SEAL for about, I don't know, 13, 14 years by that time. And, and of course, I thought about my own experience in BUDS, and that's the basic team, the SEAL training. And in BUDS, you spend hundreds of hours running around with heavy boats on your head. You spend hundreds of hours exercising with 300-pound telephone poles and, run, and running around with those things and then freezing in the surf zone. And I said to myself at that time, I said, I had done hundreds of combat missions overseas at that point in my career. I'd done thousands of training evolutions. And never on one of those did I carry a heavy boat on my head or a 300-pound telephone pole on my shoulder, which really meant that what they were doing to us in those moments of SEAL training wasn't, in fact, training us in the skills to be Navy SEALs, SEALs like the, the shooting and the diving. They were putting us in these environments and experiences to tease out these qualities, these uh, innate qualities to see if we had what it took. And so th- these are these attributes. And so what I was able to do was recognize there's a difference between skills and attributes, and we need to start looking at attributes instead of just skills, because we're looking for these qualities in individuals at this command. And we need to be, and by, by highlighting that, we're now able to articulate why 
certain guys are making it through and why guys, certain guys aren't making it through. And that's, that was really the crux of the experiment. And then it snowballed as I got out of the Navy and said, actually, this matters. This makes sense because businesses and teams are wondering why they aren't able to pick the best teams or why people aren't performing. And a lot of the questions I would get was, hey, why is that? And I said, it's probably because you're looking at the wrong things. You're looking at skills instead of attributes. Absolutely. And I think it's also really important to make very clear that, like you just also said, this does not only apply to such super skilled, high performers as the Navy SEALs. This really matters deeply for teams, for businesses, and matters to ourselves and our personal lives. Most importantly, can you break down for our audience, what's the difference between skills and attributes? Yeah, they are conflated all the time, but they are inherently different. So skills are not inherent to our nature. In other words, none of us are born with the ability to throw a ball or ride a bike or drive a car. <clears throat> skills also direct our behavior in known specific environments. Here's how and when to throw a ball or ride a bike or drive a car. And you can be taught how to do those things. You can train to do those things. That's a skill, right? Skills, because skills are very visible, they're very easy to measure and assess and score. You can put stats around them and things like that. The problem with skills, they don't tell us how we're going to show up in stress, challenge, and uncertainty because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult to apply a known skill. So this is when we lean on our attributes, on the other hand, are inherent to our nature. All of us are born with levels of patience, situational awareness, adaptability. Now, we can develop those things over time and experience, but you can see levels of this, this stuff of this stuff in very small children, right? So there's a nature-nurture element to attributes. And then attributes don't direct our behavior. Attributes inform our behavior. So in other words, attributes tell us how we're going to show up to a situation. My son's levels of perseverance and resilience informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike, and he, fall, and he was falling off a dozen times doing so. So they inform our behavior. And then because they're hidden in the background, they're difficult to see, therefore, they're difficult to measure and assess. They are the most visible and visceral during times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress. So when you're in an environment where it's really stressful, it's uncertain, it's unknown, this is when the attributes come to the fore because, it's, again, it's, it's hard to apply a skill. So what we have to understand about these attributes is the, the attributes, these qualities are driving our performance at so many levels. Not, every day, all the time, they're driving it, but especially if we want to know how we're going to show up in stress, challenge, uncertainty we need to understand the attributes we bring to the table. And I think what you're teaching, what you're offering as far as trainings and coachings go, and also what you're teaching, what you're sharing in your book is so relevant today to all of us. We are living in times of great uncertainty, of great mm -hmm. challenges. And what you share is very applicable. Let's get into the attributes. There are 25 you talk about. I think it's actually 25, 28, 25 and three. And you also mentioned it could be many more, mm -hmm. but you actually, you came up with five very specific categories, mental acuity, grit, drive, leadership, and team ability. Mm -hmm. And I would like to give our audience an overview about these five core categories. Can yeah. you give us a rundown, please? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So five categories, there actually are 25, there's 22 in the five categories. And then there's three others that I talk about later on. But the five categories are first grit. So what and a lot of people think of grit as its own attribute, but it's really not grit is the result of things blended and catalyzed and stewed together. And grit really, if we were to define grit, it'd be what the ability to push through the short term challenges and endeavors. That's how we define grit. So the attributes that make up grit are 
courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resiliency. So those four things blended and catalyzed and stewed together are what create grit. Mental acuity, those are the attributes that, that tell us how we're going to, how we're going to process the world, right? How our brain processes the world. So you have situational awareness. What levels of vigilance do we have? How much do we notice? Some people are high situational awareness. Some people are low. Compartmentalization. How effectively are we able to understand what our objective is, prioritize everything around us and focus in on the one thing we need to focus in on and get it done and block out everything else? That's compartmentalization. Task switching. How effectively can we shift our focus between categories and contexts inside of our environment. In other words, a lot of people think people a lot of people think this is multitasking, but we all know that multitasking is in fact a myth. Our conscious minds can't focus on more than one thing at a time. Now, people might be disagreeing with me. They say, "Well, Rich, I'm driving and I'm listening to this podcast." It doesn't count if you've relegated that other activity to your unconscious mind. The reason why you can drive and listen to the podcast is because you don't have to think about driving. Right? But I guarantee if you're driving and listening to this podcast and someone swerves in front of you and you have to take evasive maneuvers, right? you're going to have to rewind the last 15 seconds of the podcast because your brain will have switched. So that's task switching. Some people are just much more effectively able to switch quickly between categories and contexts. Other people, it's difficult for them to do it. It's hard for them to go from the email to the phone call to the conversation, whatever that is. And then finally, learnability. How effectively are we able to process and metabolize this stuff in our brains and our physiology? Then there's drive. Okay, if grit speaks to the short-term endeavors and goals, drive speaks to the long-term endeavor and goals. What are those attributes that make up the driven person? And those attributes are open-mindedness, self-efficacy, discipline, cunning, and narcissism. And I know that's a tricky one. We can get into that later if we want, but, but it is a driver. The leadership attributes define those attributes that cause us to be designated a leader. And again, leadership is not a noun, it's a verb. You don't get to call yourself a leader. That'd be like calling yourself good looking or funny. Other people decide whether or not you are someone they want to follow. And they do so based on the way you behave. And those behaviors stem from these kind of core attributes. And those core attributes are empathy, selflessness, authenticity, decisiveness, and accountability. And then team ability, which is really how effectively are you able to operate in a team, in a team environment. And again, just like leadership, you don't get to call yourself a great teammate. Other people decide whether or not you're a great teammate. And they do so based on the way you behave. Integrity, conscientiousness, humility, and humor. And so those are the categories, and they bend nicely into those categories. They're not, those attributes aren't exclusive to those categories, uh, of course, because one attribute in one category could be useful. Courage is also useful in drive, and open-mindedness is also useful in mental acuity, but they bend nicely. So those are the kind of the, the top five categories. Excellent. Thank you for giving us such a great overview. I think this is a really great basis for the listeners to jump off deeper with us as they accompany us along the conversation. Something I'd also, you just mentioned that narcissism, of course, which some people may be like, what? Narcissism? Right. Uh, that's a key attribute because I find this intriguing. Narcissism in general today gets a bad rap. There's so many forums online where people tell about their stories of how they've become victims of narcissists. And of course, there this is this happens this is true there's a lot of suffering there when you know something like that gets overblown and somebody lives their lives based on that and yeah. of course it's also a a disorder if it's, if yeah. it's clinical clinically diagnosed but let's talk about narcissism and it's and as a how and what are the positive parts of narcissism how does it actually help us excel and achieve success 
Yeah, and you're right. Narcissism, it gets a bad rap. Maybe it should. Uh, but I think what we have to understand is, first of all, narcissists with a disorder, the narcissistic personality disorder is only about 1% of the population, right? So narcissists are misdiagnosed all the time. And I think most people say, you're a narcissist. It's not really true. We all as human beings have hints of this because narcissism at its very base definition is the desire to stand out, be recognized and be adored. That's what it is, right? Now, there's, there's neurology behind this. Every single human being on this planet at some point in their lives wants to stand out, be desired and be adored, okay? And there's neurology behind this. When we're infants and we're being adored by, other, by our parents, for example, we are getting bursts of very powerful chemicals, neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, very powerful neurotransmitters. It feels good. It doesn't change when we're adults. It feels good to be recognized, be adored. So narcissist, and if you look at the disorder, and I did, I got a copy of the DSM-5, which is kind of the psychological Bible, and it outlines the disease or the disorder, I should say. And it gives you about nine criteria that says that basically they're, they're two sentences a piece or something. And it says if, if the patient has five or more of these, then the patient is considered disordered, has a disorder. And so I read this stuff and I was like, okay, I'm reading this. And of course I didn't have five or more, but I didn't, I didn't have zero. <laughs> I, there were, there were things on those things. I was like, I can, I've done that a couple of times. I've done that a couple of times. So really what it was is a recognition that we all at some point want to be adored. We all want to be badasses. I, so I asked myself the question, why did I become a Navy SEAL in the first place? And 22 years old, was going to be a pilot, want to be a SEAL? Because I wanted to try to be a badass. I wanted to see if I could do something that very people could, very few people could do. I asked my buddies the same thing. And of course, they were patriots and all that stuff. But they said, yeah, I wanted to try to do something that very few people could do. So the idea behind narcissism when metabolized in a healthy way is that it can be the impetus to very audacious goals. Why else would someone want to be the best surgeon or the best writer or the best musician or whatever the best ever anything? There's some narcissism in there. I think as human beings, it's healthy for us to be honest with ourselves about our human tendencies. And instead of demonizing certain things, we can say, what, are, what about those things can I actually capitalize on and use for my advantage. And I think if narcissism is metabolized in a healthy way, it can be very healthily used. Here's the catch, right? It's tough because if it gets overboard, it's basically like it seeing it in yourself is like staring is like a vampire staring in the mirror. It's almost impossible to see in yourself. The way you can inoculate yourself against overdoing narcissism is to look at the people you surround yourself with. True narcissists surround themselves with yes men, with people who basically tell them what they want to hear, who bend the knee, who constantly placate to them. It's also a very transient group, right? In other words, those people can't be that way forever. So eventually those people will start to leave. As soon as, the, as, soon as a person leaves that group, that person becomes enemy number one for that narcissist. That narcissist attacks that person usually because that's an enemy now. So it's a transient group. So if we are concerned, we just need to look at the people around us. If we surround ourselves with people who trust us, who love us, who tell us the truth, even when the truth hurts, who tell us when we're getting a big head or getting out over ahead of our skis, and we're also not always the center of attention, we're not always the, the thing, we're in good shape to effectively metabolize a little bit of narcissism and allow us to set some audacious goals.
I think this is something really important you highlighted there, Rich, that we tend to view the world in our Western culture, especially as either or, as black or white, this mm-hmm. dualistic kind of worldview. When you look at some of the Eastern teachings and philosophies where everything is part of a whole, two sides, if you so want to speak about things, they're part of a whole and it depends aspects of a certain attribute you feed and how you feed it. That's That influences how you should show up yourself, how you show up in this world and what kind of things you may cause or negative and having a healthy type of narcissism that you nurture and that helps you excel, helps you lift yourself and others up. That's a good thing in my book. Yeah. And when, what are some of the things that we need to understand when we actually want to explore and harness our own potential? How can we actually figure out which types of attributes we have, or rather which attributes are developed and which we can enhance even more? Yeah. So what we have to recognize about these attributes is that all of us have all of them. Every Because we're human, we have all of them. The difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each one. So for example, if we take adaptability, adaptability, if 10 is high and one is low, I would be about a level eight on adaptability. That means when the environment changes around me outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and roll with it, okay? Someone else might be a level three, which means when the same thing happens to them, it's difficult for them to go with the flow, right? There's friction there. Now, they're still adaptable because human beings are adaptable. It's just harder for them. So so if we were to take all these attributes and kind of line them up on a wall like dimmer switches, right? We all have different settings. And all of our lines would look differently. And there's no judgment there because, you know, it's just who we are. It'd be like judging our hair color. The key is understanding, okay, what is this, what is the attribute combination that I show up to the table with? Because that's like lifting your hood on your engine. I always kind of use the, I always use the word, the movie cars, because not only because my kids made me watch it a thousand times, it's actually a good movie. And it's a good analogy because I, I agree with it. We are all like, we are like, we're all automobiles, Okay. Some of us are Jeeps, some of us are SUVs, some of us are Ferraris. And there's no judgment there either because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. But it it behooves us to lift our hood and figure out what our engine looks like. Because if we lift our hood and we figure out our engine, we might realize, oh, I'm a Jeep that's been trying to run on a Ferrari track or I'm a Ferrari that's been trying to run on a Jeep track. And even that's okay because the knowledge of that would say, okay, I want to be a Jeep running on a Ferrari track or I want to be a Jeep running on a Jeep track. But the idea is... If I understand what I what I show up with, then I understand basically within the context of my goals, what are those f- specific attributes, if I'm low on them, that I need to actually develop, all right? And it doesn't have to be all of them because, again, to be high on all of them is both unrealistic and not a good idea because, again, it, depending on what niche you're in, too much of, some attri- of one attribute might be detrimental. I always use the stand-up comic as an example. A stand-up comic with too much empathy is going to not is not going to be able to find the funny at a funeral. So too much empathy is going to be detrimental to a stand-up comic. So depending on what niche you want to be in the goals, you have to say, okay, and based on how you show up, what are the one or two things that could help me if I develop them, but it doesn't have to be all of them. That's a very good example with a stand-up comedian. Absolutely. Yeah. That illuminates it perfectly, Rich. When we want to enhance certain attributes, a big part of that is to move out of our comfort zone and oftentimes into the unknown. And this, of course, can be this, this, of course, can cause 
fear. Somebody like yourself who moved through so many unknown situations with really high stakes. How can we mentally and emotionally move through fear? Yeah. All right. So first, I have to understand what fear is. <laughs> okay. And fear is really... Basically, it's a combination of two things. It's a combination of uncertainty and anxiety. Okay. In other words, you can have one without the other and you don't have fear. In other words, so you can be you can be uncertain but not anxious. That's I'm gonna give a I'm a I'm gonna give a no, I'm sorry, you can be anxious but not uncertain, which means I'm gonna give a presentation to my 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 colleagues next week. I'm a little bit anxious, but I, I'm not uncertain. I know my colleagues. I know the material. There's no really uncertainty there. So I'm a little bit anxious. There's no fear. There's just anxiety. Or you can be uncertain without being anxious. Okay. That's every kid on Christmas Eve. Okay. That's, I don't know what's going to go on. Yeah. If you combine the two, you get fear. Now, fear is when your amygdala starts to give you warnings that there's threats. And we get a, our amygdala gets, a, which is a threat detector in our brains, starts to say there's threat here, there's threat here our autonomic arousal goes up and we begin to move into a sympathetic response. As our autonomic arousal goes up, our frontal lobe begins to start to go offline. So in other words, you can approach amygdala hijack, which means you're just moving without thinking. That's you're just you're or you are people sometimes people actually just faint, right? They just pass out. That's an that's a different form of amygdala hijack. What we have to understand is that when that amygdala gets tickled, we start to be presented a choice. Our brain starts giving us choice. And it's two choices, basically fight or flight. We've all heard this. Again, freeze, people think that freeze is a choice. Freeze is really just an oscillation between the two choices. You're trying to decide. That's what freeze is. So there's really only two choices. Depending on what we choose, is going to, it's going to flip a specific circuit in our brain. So in other words, if we choose to fight, i.e. step into our fear, it's going to, a, flip is, a switch is going to get flipped in our brain. Once that switch is flipped, we, in fact, get a dopamine reward for that. Mm-hmm. Dopamine, we all know dopamine, very powerful neurotransmitter. It's known as the pleasure chemical. It's really not necessarily a pleasure chemical as much as it is a motivation chemical. It tells you, this is good, keep doing this. It enhances the experience, right? But we get a reward for stepping into our fear. And so what we have to understand about courage is that, first of all, it cannot exist. That is the courage switch, by the way. That switch, stepping into our fear is the courage switch. You don't have access to that courage switch unless fear is present. I.e., we've all heard it, you cannot, courage it cannot exist in the absence of fear. So fear has to be, that amygdala has to be tickled, your autonomic arousal needs to go up, you need to have fear present. And so I think for people to start understanding better ways to step in their fear, first of all, understand that fear exists for a reason in our systems. It's a threat response, right? It's a risk assessment tool that our brain is using. So it's there for a reason. But then also, because sometimes the better choice is to flee. (laughs) You don't want to fight a bear, so you want to run away. But the idea would be most of our environment every day is not necessarily the threat we think it is. And so stepping into our fear can be an act that's a little bit more habitual. It's not as risky as as fighting a bear. And so we can actually practice courage. We can actually practice doing things that give us a little bit of pause. And we can, once we do that recognize and feel that dopamine reward. It's going to feel good. And you can start small. You don't have to go skydiving tomorrow or bungee jumping, but you can start by just starting up a conversation with someone you don't know or or giving a presentation for your coworker, volunteering something. So whatever those little things are, you can actually practice courage and practice that act of stepping into your fear more and more often. Feel that reward and understand what it feels like, and you'll get better at it. Mm-hmm. 
That's excellent. And also there's things, I think you mentioned it just a few minutes ago, like breath. So there's certainly breathing exercises that we can do to calm down our nervous system. And I also, you also spoke about, I read about practicing an open gaze. Can you tell us more about that, please? Absolutely. Yeah. So when we, when our autonomic arousal goes up, we start to enter into sympathetic response and our brain begins to focus in on our threat. So we become very focused in on, on what the threat is. That's by design. And so that, that's what we, people call, I'll call tunnel vision. We're just, we don't notice anything else. We're tunnel, we're tunneling in. That is typical for a high sympathetic, high autonomic response in a fear state. We can reverse that process uh, because even in, even mild fear will begin to close our vision. We can start reversing that process by deliberately going into what's called open gaze, a panoramic gaze. Okay. This is where you're staring out. You can stare out ahead of you. And instead of focusing on something in front of you, just open up your vision and it goes, oh, it's called, also called soft gaze. And you're noticing your periphery. So I can look out and I'm noticing my hands and things like that. I'm not staring at anything. This open gaze, this panoramic gaze has been proven to bring down our autonomic response, in some case, shift us from sympathetic to parasympathetic, but certainly bring down that autonomic response and get us a little bit calmer. Knowing that, know that what's also happening as we're coming, as we're bringing that autonomic response is we're bringing our frontal lobe back online, our conscious mind back online. And we want to be able to make logical decisions during stress, challenge, and uncertainty. And so the more we can have that conscious mind available to us, the more we can actually make conscious logical decisions in that moment. So panoramic gaze is one way. And it's a cool way because you can do it and you won't look weird. There are a couple other techniques, whether it be breathing or otherwise, that you may look a little weird if you're in front of people. But I've done this even when I started public speaking, because I didn't really like public speaking. I didn't, I, I would get nervous doing it. And so I just go, I, if I started feeling that way, I just kind of go into open gaze. And I just start just calming myself a little bit. So it's a really good technique you can use almost anywhere. Yes, that's it's excellent, Rich. Thank you. And the interesting thing about public speaking, I just recently had a conversation about this with a friend who's a master in voice. Arthur Joseph is his name. And he said, we have this saying that public speaking is the greatest fear of all. But where that's actually not true, that's not the fear. The underlying issue or rather fear is the fear of abandonment. Mm. So I yeah, found yeah. that. That really resonated with me. So when we talk about enhancing, developing ourselves and growing, evolving, there's something that's really important to differentiate between, and it's something you've also written about, and that's the difference between self-discipline and discipline. Can you illuminate <laughs> that for us, Rich? Yeah, absolutely. This was a, you know, I was writing about the attribute discipline. I had to really do some introspection and thought processes about what this actually meant. And what I chose to go with in the book in terms of the attribute discipline is this idea that that discipline holistically speaks to the ability to set and move towards long-term goals and objectives. And those and their goals and objectives that the outside world has a say in whether or not you accomplish. Whereas self-discipline are those goals, those objectives that the external world has no say on whether or not you accomplish. So for example, I could say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start working out and eat, okay? And as I make that decision, and then I find myself in Las Vegas and am in front of the buffet, okay? The buffet is not going to throw food at me, okay? It'll be my, it's up, it's totally up to me as to whether or not I eat healthy at that buffet, okay? That's self-discipline. Those goals and endeavors that the external world has no say in, okay? 
the discipline are the ones that the external world does have a say in. Okay, that's I want to be a I want to be an author. I want to be a Navy SEAL. I want to go accomplish this task or whatever. The external world will have a say in it. And I think the difference is you can, and the reason why I made a distinction is because you can actually be someone who's highly self-disciplined, but not very disciplined. And that that would appear as a person who is, for example, maybe like in super good shape, very disciplined in what they eat. They work out they work out every day at the same time, they eat the same things, all that stuff, and they look fantastic, but their life is a mess. <laughs> they can't get big goals accomplished. They can't get themselves to to follow through or whatever. Whereas you can have someone who's really disciplined, but not very self-disciplined, okay? Someone who's really good at accomplishing the big term goals, but when it comes to regulating themselves, it's tough. And I would actually throw myself in that category. I'm a little lower on self-discipline. I'm higher on discipline. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the optimal balance is to be optimal on both. But the idea would be that if you find yourself in a position where you are accomplishing a bunch of good, great external goals, but you have trouble with yourself, you're probably mm-hmm. someone who needs to work on their self-discipline. If you're someone who is really great at the internal goals and everything's cool, but can't just get those big goals accomplished, you need to work on your discipline. One involves a little bit more dis- more flexibility and one involves less flexibility. So in other words, to be disciplined involves a an ability to adapt and flex and not be re- and be off routine, not to be rigid, which is exactly why the highly self-disciplined people have trouble with it. Cuz highly self-disciplined people are typically very structured, very mm-hmm. routinistic. They're like, I want this at this time. I do this at this time. And as soon as that pattern is broken, it's they get thrown off balance. It's difficult for them. Whereas, and that's why long-term goals sometimes have are problematic because everything about a long-term goal that the external world has a say in is going to throw you off pattern. Off pattern. You're going to have to be in situations where you can't, you can't, you might not be able to work out that day or might have to eat something that you didn't want to eat or whatever it is. So there's a balance there that one has to think about for themselves and ask themselves, okay, which one do I prefer one or the other? Am I pretty well balanced? But I think making this distinction can help us understand our own performance a lot better. That makes a lot of sense, Rich. And as far as core attributes go, if we look at something like success, are there certain attributes that you would say these are very good to specifically focus on. Let's say you want to be successful in business. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think the I think you have to start with the grid attributes. I think everything I try not to I try not to rank order these things, but ultimately they get rank ordered and I think if there are if there's a set that's the most important it's probably the grit ones because if you don't have elements of those attributes, courage, adaptability, perseverance and resilience, it's going to be a rough road for you no matter who you are. So it's going to start there. I think when you're talking about those longer term objectives and goals like business, now you're getting into the drive attributes, okay? There has to be some self-efficacy, open-mindedness, discipline, maybe some narcissism, maybe some cunning. And so I think the drive ones speak to those success in the business. But again, I think success is subjective as well. What is success for you? And that's the question I think that the first question someone should ask and say, what is success for me? What does that look like? It may not be that long-term thing. It might be, hey, I want to be a good person. I want to I want to step into my fear once in a while. I want to be loving with my family, whatever that is, okay? And then you start to say, okay, based on how you define success for yourself, what are the attributes that you could apply to that particular niche? Because it's going to be, I think it's going to be different. Very good point, Rich. Yes. There's something I'd like to circle back to. You mentioned it before that being a leader is not a noun. 
It's a verb. And you actually also said that great leadership is a behavior and not a position. Are there specific attributes that every leader should work on? Yes. And those are really the five I talk about. And the reason why I talk about those five is because I, as I got out of the Navy, I did work with my buddy, Simon Sinek and, and Chapman and Co. Institute to Leadership. And so I was doing a lot of work in the leadership realm. And one of the things we do whenever we'd go and talk to people around the country, around the world, is we'd oftentimes ask them, what do great leaders do? And a lot of times when we ask them that, we'd have a whiteboard next to us and we'd just say, hey, yell out things, just yell out things and we'd make a list. And that list would end up being like 20, 20, 25 things. But on that list, first of all, that list was always the same stuff, okay? It was always the same things on the list, but inevitably the top, uh, in the top 10 were these attributes I talk about, empathy, selflessness, authenticity, decisiveness, and accountability. Those were behaviors that people said, that person is someone I want to follow. And so if we, are, if we endeavor to be considered a leader, we need to work on behaving in the way a leader does, behaving more authentically, selflessly, being more decisive and, and accountable and selfless. Those are the behaviors you work on. So if you want to be a great leader, behave like one. Outstanding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's a great mantra. So how can you extend some of this to team building? What are some strategies that, for example, that we could apply as leaders to the interview process? So when it comes to teams, we have to recognize that team is a collection of humans. And so it's, so I said, I, I quote this He's deceased now, but a, a, he was an organizational theorist and a systems analyst, and his name was Russell Akoff. And he used to say, a system is never the sum of its parts. It's the product of their interaction. And it's mm -hmm. the same thing with a team. A team is never just the sum of its parts. It's a product of how they interact. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can create a team of all the best people, the dream team, for example, best marketing person, best graphics designer, best lawyer, best whatever. And they get together and they're fine as long as things are going fine. But mm -hmm. as soon as things go sideways, as soon as the environment turns uncertain or goes sideways, it turns toxic because they're put together based on skills, not these qualities. It, it, what, what causes interaction between humans is attributes-based. It's not skills-based. I would concede that there might be a couple good skills, but most of it is attributes. It's things like integrity and humility and honesty and authenticity and selflessness, things like that. That's what causes teams to start to work together. And so building teams, you have to look at what attributes are required for that team and then begin to build teams based on attributes, not just skill. And so this is what we did at the SEAL teams is we said, okay, based on the command we're at and what we're doing, what is the list of attributes that we're looking for this specific team. And we got that list together and said, okay, now we're going to start looking for it. During our selection, we're going to start looking for these things. But every team is different. The work we do with organizations at the Attributes Incorporated is we go in and we help businesses figure out what that list is for them. That list is going to be different because the list of attributes that, get, that, that make a great SEAL team is going to look different than the list of attributes that makes a great accounting team or a teaching team or a surgical team. So we help them figure out what that list looks like so that they know, okay, now we know what we're looking for in terms of attributes. And then we can now start hiring or looking. We can, first, we can start rating our performance a little bit more accurately because we can see how we perform better. What are we missing? What's happening? But then we can start hiring specifically, more specifically for these attributes. And the way you do that is you have to 
implement some stress, challenge, and uncertainty into the process, right? Just the random interview or the resume is not going to be enough, okay? And I always use the sales example because it's a kind of an easy and fun one. If you and I, for example, said we want to hire someone who's great at sales and we said, okay, we're going to tell this person on Friday afternoon, come in Monday and you will sell us this pencil, okay? And so we go through the weekend, you and I come in Monday morning, the person proceeds to get in front of us and give us a kick butt presentation on the pencil. And we're like, oh my gosh, that was great. The problem is we would not have learned that much about that person. We would have basically learned that that person's really good at going home and preparing a sales presentation and giving a sales presentation. So instead, what we do is we say on Friday afternoon, hey, come in Monday, you're going to sell us this pencil. When they come in Monday morning, we say, hey, the plans changed. You're not selling us the pencil anymore. You're going to sell us this cup. Okay. And oh, by the way, there's no audio visual. Go with it. Okay. Now at that point, you and I have to make a very conscious decision to divorce ourselves from skills assessment, okay? Because what we're about to see is going to be ugly. <laughs> but we're not looking at skills anymore. We're looking at attributes. How does this person show up? Do they go with it? Do they roll with it? Are they funny? Do they make, do they, do they just, do they get it done, right? Or do they kick the dirt? Do they spiral downward? Do they make excuses? Okay, now we're looking at attributes. So you can implement attributes assessment into any hiring process by implementing a little bit of challenge and uncertainty and stress into whatever process you currently have existing. But you need to first, the first criteria is figure out what attributes you're looking for. Because if you don't know what you're looking for, then it's a, it's a fool's errand. Absolutely. And thank you for that excellent yeah, example. That's really great. And I shall use it in the near future <laughs> when looking at hiring a new team member. That's fantastic. <laughs> so how do things like optimism and confidence, for example, factor in? I think optimism, <clears throat> again, I talk about optimism as a part of self-efficacy because self-efficacy as an attribute is really it's three parts. It's, it's confidence. I guess optimism and confidence. It's confidence. I know I can do this. It's initiative. I'm going to get, I'm getting started. And then it's optimism, or I like to say realistic optimism that says, hey, I know that there's going to be challenges along the way and I'll figure it out when I get there. So I think confidence and optimism on their own are somewhat inert. Okay. In other words, you can be confident about anything. Okay. If you don't have the initiative, to get started, you're just confident, <laughs> okay? You can be optimistic about anything. Yeah. If you don't combine it with initiative and confidence, it's just, I'm, you're just gonna be optimistic. Oh, there are there will be no weeds in my garden. I guarantee you're gonna be pulling weeds if you just say that. You need to have say, confidence and initiative to make sure that there are no weeds in your garden. So I think confidence and optimism feed into self-efficacy as an attribute that actually makes stuff happen. But on their own, they could be, they have the risk of being a little bit inert. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. What I really liked a lot, Reg, is the emphasis you also put on humor. And during your Navy SEAL Hell Week training, you had an experience that actually showed you how important humor is. Can you yeah. tell us that story, please? Of course. Yeah. So in Navy SEAL training, BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Slash SEAL Training, this is the six-month course in San Diego, they do something called surf torture. Now, surf torture is an evolution where you all as students line up at the edge of the surf zone and you lock arms and you're supposed to walk into the surf zone until it's about knee high and then you turn around and you lay back. So you're basically laying there and the waves are crashing over your head and then receding and they're crashing over your head. Now, you, I know you're on the West Coast, so you know how cold Southern California water is. A lot of people don't know that Southern California water is really cold. So it's a very, very cold evolution and a lot of people quit during that surf torture because you're in there for what seems like forever just freezing it's the coldest thing i've ever done 
inevitably at some point during that process, they do it to, they do it to you several times, but inevitably at some point during one of the processes or one of the times they're doing it, a instructor will drive a van up onto the beach and get out of the van with a megaphone and say, I have hot chocolate and blankets and donuts for anybody who quits right now. Okay. So it's kind of, yeah, this cruel Machiavellian and you get a lot of people quitting, right? Cause it's a, cause people are miserable. Now I remember them doing that with my SEAL training class. I was in the surf torture, by the way, they don't call it surf torture anymore. They call it surf conditioning. It's a little bit more politically correct. Okay. But anyway, I was in there getting conditioned and, uh, and the same thing happened. I was miserable and the same thing. The instructor came on the, came on the megaphone and offered that. And I remember he offered that. And as soon as he did, the guy to my right, who was locked in my right arm, screams at, screams back at him and says, Hey, do you have any chocolate glazed donuts? Because if you don't, I'm not quitting. Okay. I remember hearing that and I burst out laughing and he burst out laughing. And I said to myself, okay, we're going to be fine. But I looked to my left and the guy who was on my left, locked on my left arm, he was just stone faced. He hadn't even heard the joke. He was lost in his pain. And I remember saying to myself, Oh boy, this guy's not going to make it. And sure enough, within a few, you know, within about a minute, he quit. So mm-hmm. really, so what, what happens there? What we have to understand about humor and laughing is an involuntary response. And during that involuntary response, when we laugh, we are actually juiced with three very powerful chemicals. First is dopamine. We talked about dopamine. It's a motivator. Keep doing this. Feels good. The second chemical is endorphins. Now, endorphins are human body's opiates. It masks our pain. What's interesting about endorphins is that in the late 60s, early 70s, neuroscientists were studying the brains of drug addicts. And when they were studying the brains of drug addicts, they, drug, drug addicts, they recognized that the human brain had opiate receptors. And they said, wow, why the heck does the human brain have opiate receptors? Well, it's because we make our own opiates. They're called endorphins. They mask our pain. This is called runner's high. Anybody who's an athlete understands this. <clears throat> we are endurance creatures. We're designed to go the long haul. So endorphins allow us to mask our pain. So anyway, we get dopamine, we get endorphins. And then we go, it's called also, it's really, it's a neuromodulator. It's called oxytocin. People mm-hmm. think of it as a hormone, a neuromodulator, which means it affects our, both our brain and our body. It's known in layman's terms as the love hormone, the love chemical. Okay? It bonds us, it binds us. It's the neurobiological thing that makes us binded to other human beings. We yes. get it during, yeah, go ahead. And also during birth, a yes. massive amount of oxytocin flood the woman's <laughs> body. It also helps us deal with pain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a massively powerful bonding binding chemical that you get when you laugh, which is interesting. So think about it. When you laugh involuntarily, you get all three chemicals. I'm sitting in the surf zone. I'm miserable. I'm in pain. My buddy makes his joke. I get dopamine. Okay, this is good. Keep doing this. I get endorphins. This doesn't feel that bad. And I get oxytocin. Okay, we're in this together. We're bonded. This is why humor is so powerful in any team. I've never experienced a high performing team that doesn't have humor involved. And I always say in the book, I say, honor your class clowns. There's obviously, usually teams have one or two people. They're the people who the jokesters. Now, the humor as an attribute, you don't have to be the class clown. You just have to be able to laugh. But you want to make sure there's a couple class clowns who make you laugh once in a while when things are tough. This is also why humor is one of the most desired qualities when finding a mate. Because humor, the ability to make your partner laugh it signals. It's a signal. Hey, I'm there. I can take care of you. It makes you feel good. It keeps you going. Remember, we talked about you getting a dopamine reward when you step into your fear, right? Courage gives you dopamine. You get dopamine when you laugh as well. So laughter is a courage hack. Okay. And we all, some of us have experienced this when you're, re- you might have been very afraid of something at a certain time, you're really afraid and someone makes you laugh and you, your fear goes away for a little while, right? For a second, because you just got to 
you just got a, a dopamine hit. So there's a tremendous power in humor and laughter as an attribute. Uh, the, some of some people that I'm honored to call friends are also from the military special operations community. There are some of the funniest people <clears throat> I've ever met. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People ask me what I miss about the team, if I miss the teams, and I say to them, I don't miss the teams, because to miss means this is a longing that I want to go back, and you age out of that stuff. I'm, I'm too old for that stuff anymore. But what I look, what, what some of my fondest memories are the laughter. We would just laugh at everything. In the darkest moments, mm. someone would crack a joke, and we'd start laughing. And it's, it's a real powerful tool. Something I'm curious about, someone like yourself, who's had a tremendous career in the military, and now you're having an amazing career sharing your knowledge and actually coaching others, help elevate others and help them grow and become optimal performers. I know people for whom the transition out of the military life to the civilian life can be quite hard and where a quality that serves you super well during your active duty life, such as compartmentalization, the might be detrimental, for example, when you're dealing with PTSD and might make it much, much harder to get over it. Is there Are there any things that you would share with somebody who is just transitioning out of a life like yours had in order to find another perhaps purpose or mission in life? Yeah. Yeah. Just so for someone transitioning, one of the hardest parts is going to be finding a new identity. You establish such a powerful identity in the military, whatever you're doing, certainly as a Navy SEAL. And then once you leave, it feels like that identity is gone or stripped. And in, in many cases, it is. It depends on, I guess, wh where you're coming from or what you've been doing. But, but that's a hard thing to handle for a lot of people because you have to create this new one. Creating a new identity takes courage. And so, I, so a couple things I'd say is, first of all, lean on the same courage. Lean on the same attribute you use to be successful in the military. Lean on that to be successful outside the military. It's going to take courage. You're stepping into the unknown. You're going to try, you have to try new things. Feel the reward when you do and be proud of yourself for doing it. So lean on that. But the other thing I would say is if it feels like it's hard to overcome, then definitely get help because, because it's, this is, we've had many, too many instances of former military folks, even former SEAL friends who have, who have taken their life because they couldn't get over it. And, and you don't, have to have this tough guy, tough gal mentality, like I can do this on my own. You might not be able to do it on your own. That's okay. Not all of us can do it on our own. In fact, very few of us can do it on our own. So if you find yourself on your own and you find yourself struggling, go find help immediately. Go find someone who you can talk to, a friend who might be going through the same thing, but go make it your mission to find help. That's what I would say. But it's going to take courage to do all of that. So those who are transitioning, you are already courageous you're just going to be, you're going to be asked to be courageous in a different form. So. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Rich. And I think courage is a huge factor and be able to reframe it in the way you just offered as guidance. And another thing is also, I found that not only is it going to be difficult, especially if you come from a certain culture to actually open up about vulnerability, but a lot of people who have done so much served and protected others and who have been with others in teams that have done the self, many struggle with the idea of the, these other people had it so much tougher than me. Who am I to even have pain? Right. Also develop that self-empathy, that compassion to actually not compare pain with pain, but to yes. just 
be able to embrace it and go forth with it and share it. And like you said, seek help when you need it. In other words, for those people who are comparing pain with pain and saying, I don't deserve it as much as that other person, you can actually help that other person even more by helping yourself. You're not going to help anybody if you don't get yourself straight. So I would offer the other aspect is you can do more for others if you can get yourself online. And so use that as an excuse if you need to. Absolutely. And when you give yourself permission to heal, you're sending out a super strong signals to others as well. Yeah. They also can give themselves permission to heal and that it's a very powerful and beautiful thing to do. Yes, absolutely. Rich, there's a question I ask every guest I have the pleasure to converse with, and that's about their practices. Are there any practices that have been instrumental in your life to elevate you physically, mentally, or physically? Spiritually. Uh, yeah, spiritually. I, I need more. <laughs> I, my, my self-discipline for me to become, to, wor- to become more self-disciplined is to implement routine and habits. I'm pretty good at just going with the flow and I, I can make stuff happen. So, so I, for me, it's about trying to implement habits. I, of course, try to work out every day, exercise every day. Eating right is good. I would say the most fundamental thing I do is I always hug my kids, kiss my kids and my wife and tell them I love them constantly. That for me is a routine that will never go away. I have to do it because that grounds me. It really does. And that's, they are the reason why I do what I do. And, and it's, if I have only that in a day, I'm fine. And so I just, that's the basic thing for me. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, Rich. And for those who would like to learn more about you or reach out to you and connect, how can they do so? The best place is at our website. So theattributes.com. And there you can find the book if you want. You can find, we have a, a free assessment tool that people can go and they can actually take and they can see where they score on the grid attributes, the mental acuity attributes and the drive attributes. They can check that out. Some blogs are up there. If you want to work with us as the Attributes Incorporated, you can fill out a form and work with us as well. We can come in and help you figure out your own attributes. And then, of course, my social media handles are there, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. They're all a one-stop shop. So Outstanding. And I'll make sure to put all of that in the show notes as well. Rich, thank you so much for making time out of your busy schedule and joining us today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, it was such a pleasure for me as well. Thanks for having me. It's been that's been great. So thank you. And thanks for the thanks for your support. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 